Hey friends, I'm Stuart Sutherland, co-founder of Heritage Missional Community. We are a growing network of microchurches centered around a coffee house and coffee roasting business in Shasta Lake, California. If you've ever thought there has to be more to this journey of following Jesus, then this is the right place for you. Thanks for joining me in a casual conversation about reclaiming authentic discipleship. Fill up your coffee cup, settle in, and here we go. Hey, welcome back to episode three. Going to talk about wandering inside our calling, the story where Sarah and I were really kind of just not sure what to do with our lives. We had kind of the normal family thing going on, but things were just kind of plain. They were okay. But then the Lord came and interrupted that. So that's where we're going to go today in that interruption when the Lord shows up. And the story ended last episode, episode two, with a short-term mission trip to Paraguay. And on that journey, we had the two missionaries pull us aside and say, you guys have what it takes to be on the mission field, but don't go unless the Lord calls you. Man, we were relieved when we heard that last line because stepping into the mission field was terrifying. Even though we had gone on a short-term missions trip, we had fun. The idea of that becoming our lifestyle, the idea of that becoming everything, being the identity that we operated in. Because if you remember, our perspective of a missionary was somebody who was a superhero, somebody who had way more courage and it was just superhuman to be a missionary. It was so outside of our paradigm. We felt way too ordinary for that. We just thought, man, we're just happy to serve in our local church. And in this part of our journey, it reminds me of a little bit of a story. You see, we're all about reclaiming authentic discipleship. And one of the most beautiful places that I see that's in the Old Testament with Abraham, Father Abraham, Abraham was called by the Lord, and the Lord said this, go to a land that I will show you. And if, with Abraham, he just went. He, he said, okay, Lord, I'll, I'll go. And in that calling, we see Abraham's faith being the most important thing. In fact, the author of Hebrews chapter 11 talks about Abraham's faith is attributed to his righteousness, his being in a right position or right living with the heavenly father, with God, our creator, God, his, his righteousness was tied directly to his faith. What that means is Abraham's hearing what the Lord inviting him into and just responding, that action of faith was really the most important thing. When we think about God's covenant with Abraham, God makes a promise to Abraham that he's going to bless you know, all people for all time through his people that will, you know, through his offspring, he's going to have the Lord saying, you're going to have offspring, you're going to have children, you're going to have many children, you're going to have descendants that go before you. And yet in this story of Abraham, he gets a little bit leery, you know, even though the Lord says it and he believes it, he and his wife, Sarah kind of conspires thinking, well, what, how can we make this promise happen? And so what do they do? Well, Sarah gives Abraham Hagar, Sarah's handmaiden, and says, 
you know, sleep with Hagar, have a child through her, and that way we can fulfill God's promise. And through that event, Abraham gives has his first son, Ishmael, and that was not God's intent. That was not the way God was going to operate. God was going to operate a little bit further than what Abraham was comfortable with and, and operate supernaturally by making it possible for Sarah in her old age to have their first son, Isaac. And so we see that even though Abraham was this man of faith, the hero of the faith, and because he believed and the Lord said it and he did it, he's a hero, it, it really is still checkered with his doubt, with his fear, with him stepping in and taking control. I mean, I, I love that human side of Abraham in the story. And I can totally relate to that because there are so many times now and even in our when I look back on our journey of when I've tried to take control, I've tried to make things work, even though the Lord's promised something, but I'm not seeing it happen yet. And so our story, my story really begins in an ordinary place, in an ordinary job. I mean, we were work, I was working in architecture and I was working in the print room and the print room was a great job. It paid well. It allowed for us to have our first place, our first apartment on our own without living with mom or dad. And that was great. We, we loved that. We bought a little barbecue and had time to hang together as a family and it was, it was an amazing time. It was amazing for us to um, just grow together in a relationship for Sarah and I and Natalie. And then it was actually in that time we decided to have another, another kid. So we, Haley came along not, not long after. And when I was working at the architecture firm, I was given a responsibility to clean this pond. Now, this pond was designed by one of the senior partners. He, he actually worked on the design of the whole building that we were working in. And the, the pond was kind of his special pet thing. Like the, the pond was his favorite thing and it had to be clean. And so when I was given my duties as the print room kid, one of the things was make sure that you clean Gene's pond. Gene likes his pond clean. And so I thought, okay, that's easy. I can do that. So I would get up early in the morning and I would clean the ponds. And Gene took notice of this and actually was talking to the other partners and and architects saying, man, this guy is actually cleaning the pond. We asked how many kids to do this and not one of them would do it. But this guy, Stuart, he's going to clean the pond. That's amazing. So he took notice of that and was honored by the fact that I just took a minute to do what I was told to do, I guess. But um, I had learned how to do some AutoCAD, automated drafting in high school, computer-aided drafting. That's what CAD stands for, if you're wondering. And one of the architects took me under his wing and said, you know, maybe we can, we can train you up. If you already have some experience with this, maybe we can get you, get you on in the technical staff as a draftsman. And so one of these mornings while I'm cleaning the pond, Gene is coming into the office and he looks over at me and just kind of smiles. And I said, hey, Gene, I'm talking to one of the architects and he said that he could train me up on AutoCAD. I've already got some experience with it. Would you, would you consider hiring me on as a draftsman if I, if I learned to draw? And he says, he looks at me, he stops. And he says, you learned to draw, you got a job. And it was at that moment that I had hope. I knew that there was opportunity for me. And, and, and there was, I kept moving up. I was from, I moved from print room 
to draftsman, from draftsman to project manager, where I was working with uh, city agencies, I was working with clients, I was working with engineers, I was going to job sites. And it was really an exciting time. And so it felt like a really growth, a successful time, but still just made space for it to be ordinary. And in that ordinary, I got to have fun. I went mountain biking. The, the guys that I worked with were mountain bikers. I picked up mountain biking, bought my own bike, and we would weekend warrior it in the, in the mountains of Shasta County. And we had a blast. In fact, Shasta County's probably got some of the best mountain bike trails in the country, but that's my bias. And so we would just have tons of fun. I grew up backpacking and would continue to backpack, take Sarah and the girls backpacking, go backpacking with friends. And also mountaineering. Now mountaineering is something that my grandfather did. He climbed and summited Mount Shasta seven times. And I really wanted to climb Mount Shasta. I'm like, man, grandpa did it. I want to do it. It just seems like an epic thing. 14,179 feet, one of the tallest mountains in the U.S. And why not, right? Just for the view, for the accomplishment. And so I trained. And before I climbed Mount Shasta, I needed to connect with somebody who actually climbed. And we were going to this church that I was sharing about last time, Trinity Alliance Church that it was divine intervention in bagpipes that got us there. And so we connected with the senior pastor. His name was Mark, and he was an ultra marathon runner. And as we were sharing our passions, backpacking came up, and Mark thought, you know, hey, wouldn't it be great if we did a week-long backpacking trip that was also a way that we could do some small group discipleship sort of a thing? And so we coordinated with Mark and we made this amazing trip happen in Southern Oregon on the Pacific Crest Trail. Spent seven days out there hiking, eating, praying, and just an amazing, beautiful time. And in fact, when I think about safe places that I go with the Lord, I remember one of the meadows that I was in there on that trip. It was just so epic and gorgeous and peaceful. And so after having that trip with Mark, um, it was time to climb Mount Shasta. Mark was going to go for his first time. I was going for my first time. And so we had this guy, Bob, who was going to take us because he had been up the mountain a few times. Bob was a cyclist and Mark was an ultra marathon runner. And I was a backpacker slash mountain biker thinking I was way low on the totem pole as far as fitness, but heck, you know, I could try it. Let's do this. And one of the things that I picked up on my trip with Mark in Southern Oregon on the PCT was how to consume more calories. What you notice is when you're hiking, you can only eat so much food. Your stomach's only so big. You can only carry so much. It gets heavy when you carry a lot of bulky food. And so he had this concoction of powdered milk and chocolate uh, milk chocolate mix. He'd mix them together in his Nalgene bottle and guzzle it down. And he'd say, yeah, that's the best way to consume calories. And so this was something I hadn't tried, but I thought, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to bring this to the climb up Mount Shasta because if there's ever a time needed for extra calories is definitely climbing Mount Shasta. And so I did it. I, uh, I, packed the powdered milk in the chocolate mix and my Nalgene bottle among all of the other things that were required to climb. And we had to get up, we got to base camp, and then we had to wake up at about 2 a.m. to make our ascent up the mountain. And so I'm mixing my 
chocolate milk concoction in my Nalgene bottle and I guzzle it down and I'm all excited. I put my gear on, got my crampons on, I've got my ice axe in my hand and here we go. We're going for it. And so out of the tent, we're hiking up the mountain and then I notice something. Something's going very wrong in my gut. There's just a tremor in the force and I can't quite put my finger on it, but it's not good. We get up to Lake Helen and this is a point where, you know, it's, it's, it's up there quite a bit. Um, I can't remember the elevation off the top of my head, but um, it's the views starting to become incredible. The sun's starting to rise. And I realize I've got to use the restroom bad, but there's no restroom. And in fact, not only is there not a restroom, we're above the tree line. Now, if you are a vain person, person who... Um, likes their privacy with the bathroom time. That's definitely me. And I needed to get over that super quick or I was going to have soiled pants. So on the mountain, there's a rule. The rule is this. You pack out everything. You don't leave any body waste, any, any waste of any kind on the mountain, which meant that I had to use my special package they gave me, which was two Ziploc bags, uh, a paper bag, and a paper target, which, you know, how kind of them to give us a target. So I used my first bag. I filled that sucker right up and started climbing some more, but the pain was not going away. Turns out I used Mark and Bob's bags and I still was having challenges. The whole climb was misery, one foot in front of the other, panting from being over 10,000 feet and probably suffering from what I now discovered as lactose intolerance. Not a good thing to discover while you're climbing a mountain exposed with a lot of other people. But I endured. I made it to the top of the mountain. We summited. It was epic, beautiful t-shirt weather on the summit, which is very rare. The view for miles and miles. And all I could think about was getting off. So I take the obligatory picture and just book it off the mountain. And after I get off the mountain, um, make it to the restroom, you know, sigh of relief and what a, what a crazy discovery about myself. For one, don't drink milk and do heavy exercise, or actually now just don't drink milk. And then secondly, I could do it. I could endure a lot of pain and suffering, but overcome it for a big goal like that, climbing Mount Shasta. So my six, first successful summit. And when I think about that story, I think about how, you know, when I look back on it, I think how powerful it was, how much it meant to learn that about myself. We don't actually understand our limits until we exceed them. And then we now understand that there's a new limit. And then we can push even beyond that sometimes. And it was just such a powerful lesson in what we call forward relentless progress on the mountain. It's one foot in front of the other. You know what? You need to take a break. Good. Take a break, but then keep that forward, relentless progress one foot after the other, and you can get there. And what a great lesson, because what was about to happen was going to put that lesson to the test. I graduated from university with a degree in organizational leadership while working my way up in architecture. So I uh, went to school for a completely unrelated uh, unrelated field. And so it didn't make sense, but you know, whatever. Um, so I had some expectations at work, you know, I thought, okay, I'm working my way up at work. I've got this new degree, organizational leadership. I work in an organization, time to exercise that leadership, right? You know, 
So here I was, idealistic and thinking, talking with the partners of how I could help with human resources, how I could help in other areas, how I could help them be better bosses, you know, all the things that I thought that I knew that I probably didn't, but I was going to tell them how to do it anyway because I have my degree, right? Isn't that what the degree means? Oh, yeah, we've got a lot to learn, don't we? So um, what I realized was that degree meant absolutely nothing. And I mean that in the form of it meant nothing to the company that I was working for. It meant nothing for my work. Um, it, it quickly became a reality that I was expecting change and change was not going to come just because I completed my studies. So that was a bummer. That was a hard one, but you know what? Life continued. We, st we continued to be um, this family, going to church, being in the ordinary. And a year goes by after graduation, and I've kind of, at this point, maybe acquiesced. I've just been okay. I'm, I'm, just, I'm settled with the idea that, all right, I'm not going to you know, take over the office with this cool new degree. I'm not going to go do bigger or greater things. I'm just going to kind of stick it out here. This is a good job. It's got good pay. It's going to be okay. And about a year after graduation, I'm playing bass at a worship team on the worship team of Trinity Alliance. And yeah, I play bass at this point. Um, after bagpipes, it was like, well, I needed a second cool instrument, right? Why not bass? So as I was playing bass, this second service was coming along and I just felt ill. I felt so sick. I just couldn't move. I needed to go home. And yeah, there's a sick theme, I guess, in this, this episode. <laughs> so I go home and I'm on the couch and I just break down weeping and crying. And, and it wasn't, the sickness kind of turned into heaviness. It turned into something that just felt weighty. It felt overwhelming. And then Sarah's sitting there next to me, and she's like, what? What's going on with you? What's wrong? And all I could say is, babe, I think the Lord is calling us to the mission field. And she looks at me, and she goes, oh, I know. <laughs> of course, she knew. And so Sarah was already hearing from the Lord. It took me the, uh, you know, the Holy Spirit two by four, and we were like, okay, we've got to do this. This is what we need to do. So we went ahead and, and started to pursue what does it look like to be missionaries. So our next step was to become missionary candidates with the Christian and Missionary Alliance, and the application was thorough. Um, everything from Bible knowledge, theology, to background, to psychology, all the, you know, checking tons of references and at this point, we were so afraid of what it meant to be a missionary. We were super excited for it to be a rigorous process because we figured the more rigorous, the more prepared we were going to be. And in a lot of ways, that's super true. But we endured a lot of pain and a lot of challenges while raising a family, while working full time. And now the Lord throws a wrench in the works. He goes, okay, now you're going to go, go be missionaries. And so the, the, process of this was we had to get our, you know, our license, pursue ordination. And for me, it meant one big thing, and that was I needed to go back to school. And so this whole process before I went back to school was, was a little bit of time, probably about another year, and it just felt like wandering in the desert. It felt miserable. It was so challenging to have this call, to have this burning 
on our hearts and to live out ordinary life. I mean, once you, once you get hit with a call, once the Lord says go, it was like, okay, go where? And something that I have learned about myself is waiting is an ugly thing for me. I'm an ugly waiter. I brood. I get grumpy. I get frustrated. I just, I have all the man emotions that, you know, should probably be more uh, defined as sad and worried and fearful and anxious and uh, all of that stuff. But really it just comes out as grumpy, angry, broody. And it just, it was a hard time. And if I ever think of a moment where that climbing of Mount Shasta was so, so crucial, it was in this moment because it really was forward, relentless progress, which led me to enrolling in Tozer Seminary. And so as I was attending seminary, this is where the story makes a turn. You see, I met this guy. His name was Bill Randall. Bill was uh, the lead pastor at Risen King Church, another church in Reading, just uh, across town from where we were at. And as Bill and I started talking, there was just a connection. He was this uh, apostolic, as in a creative, let's take the next hill for Jesus sort of guy who just wanted to get things done, but wanted to do that in a way that was creative. And man, what an alignment with me. What, what, a, what, a, what a perfect fit. And so as we started talking, I was sharing with him my desert experience, my frustrations, my, my feeling of though that I just felt like nothing was really happening. And so it was in that, in that conversation that Bill and I started praying and we started dreaming about what, what could this look like? How could we partner? How could we take things to the, to the next level? And the Lord made it super clear that we were going to make a transition now, normally when we make a transition from one church to the next in the missionary candidate process with the CMA, we have to go across the country. We have to go to an unfamiliar place. Uh, one of the exceptions they made for us, which was really a huge blessing, was we were allowed to basically be sent out from our home church of Trinity Alliance across town to Risen King, which puts a, put us in proximity to run with, with Bill, his team, with with Risen King. And um, that was a really beautiful and also challenging time. So despite the fact that we had connected with Risen King, with Bill Randall, and we had some amazing opportunities to just create, working in the Oasis Cafe was an amazing opportunity I think the challenge was that we were still waiting. And again, like I said, my, waiting for me is just a difficult time. It was a difficult process to be in. But there was a lot that took place. And looking back at it probably is easier to see the value of this time than it is to, to be in the middle of it. And when I look back at it, I see just a ton of training, a lot of opportunity to learn um, going through um, just some training on preaching, some training on um, spiritual formation. I mean, talk about some really amazing stuff. We went through um, some formational prayer training, which was just inviting the Lord into the middle of places of woundedness. And I'd say probably one of the most impactful times was running with the, the church leadership at Risen King and just finding some freedom, not recognizing that we were 
carrying around some wounds, carrying around some brokenness. And just this whole time that we were, where it seemed like we were wandering, where it, where it seemed like maybe yet another desert time or desert experience, um, it really was beneficial. It was really preparing us. It was building a foundation for what the Lord had next for us. So while it was like in the middle of it, it's like, what's the value in this? Um, when, when it feels like nothing is actually happening, really a ton was going on. I mean, just learning how to, to pray with expecta- expectation. We were learning a lot about the Holy Spirit. We were we went through a kingdom ministry training and just learning like, why does God, God, you know, not why, but God actually wants to heal, that God wants to, um, to bless us. God wants to come on us with power and bring um, healing and signs and wonders into a broken world. I mean, that's how we know that our faith is, is active and living. And so much came from this time. But again, just the feeling of, you know, okay, I'm going to sit through another training. Oh, yeah, I learned something new about myself. I mean, some of those times were really just momentous. They felt really important. And at other times, it just kind of felt, okay, you know, I've, I've checked off in another box in a training. But um, at the end of this time, I've never felt more ready for something. It was like the call burned in us. And as we continue to add tools to our tool belt, we were really just approaching. Sarah and I were just coming to a point of going, okay, we're, we're, we're stoked. We're ready. We're, we're, whatever it is, Lord, send us, you know, and what a contrast that was from Lord, I'll do anything, but please, please don't make me a missionary. Don't send me to a foreign place. And so that's where the desert experience for us seemed to come to a conclusion. And so today I'm going to end on that. And on our next series, I'm going to be talking about vision, like when the vision came. And man, what a relief when vision comes. Thanks for joining in today, and I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Please be sure to subscribe and leave a comment if you enjoyed this episode. You can check out our ministry at heritagecoffeehouse.org. And remember, we all play a vital role in God's plan for redemption. So what's the Father saying to you, and what are you going to do about it?